Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is... Did the Irish government cover up a famine in 1925? This podcast is about a tragic but forgotten chapter in Ireland's history. It's based on research I carried out earlier this year, which reveals the appalling deprivation that many of our ancestors lived in during the early years of Irish independence, and then tragically, evidence of yet another cruel cover-up by the authorities of the day. If you want to read the text of this podcast, Along with the references used, you can find them at irishhistorypodcast.ie. Now to the year 1925. To begin, I'm going to look at a crisis that embroiled Ireland in 1924 and 1925, and then the dark cover-up that followed. In the early 1920s, Ireland was in a ruinous state. The War of Independence, the Civil War and then an economic depression, were taking their toll on society. An internal government memo of November 1924 painted a grim picture. In industrial and commercial occupations, some 47,000 are unemployed. In agriculture, probably 40,000. Business is languishing. Bank deposits are diminishing. The national trade balance is adverse. The governing party, Cumann were committed to bringing the country back onto an even keel. However, this led to one of the darkest chapters in Ireland's economic history when they attempted to cover up severe levels of starvation among substantial numbers of the population. The government's plan for economic recovery in the 1920s was simple and will resonate with many today. Extreme austerity. A highly conservative party, Cumberland Whale, were committed to trickle-down economics, seeing large farmers as the engine of the economy. Therefore, they tried to cut the rich farmers' taxes and costs while also reducing government expenditure, regardless of the social cost. In 1923, they supported these big farming interests in a vicious labour dispute that saw wages slashed by 16% and a seven-day working week reintroduced. In 1924, the finance minister, Ernest Blythe, cut the old-age pension by 10%, something that would haunt the government in later years. However, 
worse lay ahead. The harvest in 1923, and then in particular 1924, was nothing short of disastrous. The weather, while not particularly cold, was unusually wet. Crop yields collapsed. The potato, still the main food source for many rural poor, rotted in the fields. Fodder was impossible to find for animals, and herds died in large numbers from hunger-related diseases. To compound this crisis, it was impossible for people to dry out turf, the main fuel source for the rural poor. The worst affected areas were in the west of Ireland, and in particular the Atlantic Islands. As 1924 drew to a close, hundreds of thousands of people in what were known as the congested districts, the most impoverished areas, were in dire need. The Freeman's Journal illustrated the depths of the crisis when reporting from Connemara, one of the worst hit regions, that 75% of the people had now no potatoes, their chief diet in the last two months, and the harvest prospects were never worse in living memory. There is no employment. As early as the 20th of August 1924, the Meath Chronicle reported a famine condition is imminent as bad as 1847. This is recalling the Great Famine of the 19th century that killed around 10% of the population of Ireland. Through the early autumn, local and national newspapers were littered with similar predictions of mass starvation. These dire predictions were not just the work of newspaper editors prone to sensationalism, however. In September 1924, after the Anglo-Celt, a cavern-based newspaper, predicted famine, the local branch of the governing party, Common and Wales, complimented the newspaper, saying that it was a timely exposure of the true state of affairs. The shadow of famine is overspreading the outlook of the poor peasantry. By October, people in Connemara were reduced to surviving on seaweed and shellfish. Even though the government voted through £500,000 in aid, the crisis continued to deepen and by early January 1925, the worst predictions began to materialise in the west of Ireland. On New Year's Eve 1924, a doctor was called to the home of Michael Kane, who lived on Omi Island. Arriving at the house, the physician found... Kane was lying on the stone floor near a small turf fire. His emaciated face showed only too plainly the cause of his illness. The man was starving and too far gone to benefit from medical attention. Two children of three years and two years, respectively, were lying by the fire trying to keep warm. They too were weak for want of nourishment. Michael Kane died two days later in Galway Hospital from typhoid, his body too weak to resist. He was not the only casualty, however. In January and February, newspapers in Clare and Galway reported the deaths of over 10 people, predominantly children from starvation or starvation-related diseases. Harrowing accounts of desperate poverty-filled newspaper columns. The charity, Queen Victoria's Jubilee Nurses Organisation, saw a large increase in maternity and child welfare cases from 51,000 106 in 1924 to 67,295 in 1925. While the English-based newspaper, the Manchester Guardian, termed what was happening in Ireland as a famine, this may have been an exaggeration. While it is true people were dying from malnutrition and starvation, the view of the President, W.T. Cosgrave, is perhaps more accurate. He described the situation of distress as considerably greater than normal, but comparison with 1847 is, I am glad to say, not justified. There is no question of famine in that sense. Using the worst famine in modern European history as a benchmark nevertheless illustrated the depth of the crisis. 
Next, we will look at what was done to alleviate this shocking situation. Given the prominence of starvation in the Irish psyche and history, the fact that there were people starving to death in Ireland in 1925, only three years after independence, ensured this crisis had ramifications far beyond the humanitarian sphere. The political implications were massive. Initially, the government appeared proactive. Although fiscally conservative, they had provided £500,000, a considerable sum of money for the time. They also began to ship coal supplies into the west of Ireland to replace the saturated turf. They publicly released statistics predicting that 153 townlands across eight counties, Cork, Kerry, Galway, Cavan, Donegal, Clare, Leitrim and Sligo, were in distress and generally impoverished. However, in early 1925, their approach began to change when the crisis attracted international attention. English newspapers began to carry articles outlining the nature of events in Ireland. In the following months, the story was carried around the world. By April, it was receiving prominent attention in the Soviet daily Pravda. However, it was the Manchester Guardian that carried the most detailed reports, claiming around 750,000 people were starving in February 1925. Prior to these international reports, the government while denying the worst excesses of the crisis, did acknowledge they faced a severe problem. On February the 7th, the Minister for Local Government claimed not one instance had the Ministry received of actual starvation or famine, but added there was acute distress. However, on February the 13th, 1925, the government's position shifted dramatically. Speaking in the Dáil, that's the Irish Parliament, the Minister for Agriculture, Mr PJ Hogan, ludicrously asserted There is no abnormal distress in the West this year. I say that definitely and deliberately. There is always distress in the West, but the distress this year is not particularly unique. There is never a real famine in the West unless there is a failure of potatoes, and there was no failure of potatoes this year. Hogan's claim was not only at odds with media reports over the previous six months, but also with his own colleagues. His close friend and Minister for Justice, Kevin O'Higgins, had predicted food shortages in a speech marking Irish independence in December 1924. On January the 31st, the President, W.T. Cosgrave, wrote a memo to the editor of the New York Evening World saying he believed that the crisis in the West was so severe that it could not be met by perennial relief measures. Finally, Hogan's own Department of Agriculture were well aware of the extent of the crisis. Later, in 1925, his departmental secretary, F.J. Merrick, reflected on the 1924 potato crop as practically a complete failure. Hogan, however, was not the only one to ignore the suffering and starvation of the people. No one in the Dáil challenged the minister's assertions, not even the leader of the opposition Labour Party, Thomas Johnson. Indeed, despite the fact that there were numerous cases of deaths and widespread reports of destitution, The topic of starvation or distress did not dominate political debate in Ireland in the following weeks. When the topic was discussed, the government were almost hostile. During a debate in March 1925, which discussed distress in County Clare, where herds of cattle were dying in large numbers, PJ Hogan, the Minister for Agriculture, again denied any great crisis. On this occasion, he even blamed the electorate of Clare for electing poor local politicians. Later in 1925, as international attention waned, the government returned to its earlier position of acknowledging acute distress in certain areas. However, it is clear they had covered up the existence of this crisis. 
Next, we will look at how and why this was done. The incident that triggered the callous and dangerous denial and cover-up of starvation in Ireland in 1925 was almost certainly a telegram received from the United States of America. On February the 11th, 1925, the Cabinet received a US telegram with a cover note from James Douglas, a member of the Irish Senate and a prominent businessman. The telegram from the editor of the newspaper, the Boston Globe, was seeking official clarification on whether there was a famine in Ireland. Senator Douglas added his opinion on the cover note that, and I quote, the present propaganda in the United States alleging that there is a famine will do great harm to our credit in every way unless it is countered. This telegram appears to have been decisive. Concerned with the interests of large farmers and their emerging new state, a fear of international rebuke touched a nerve with Irish politicians. After only three years of independent rule, they were nothing short of hypersensitive about Ireland's international image. When faced with a choice of downplaying the starvation or risking their international reputation, the choice was simple for the politicians of Common Naguil. Individuals like PJ Hogan lived in a world apart from those who were starving. He belonged to a different class, believing an ordinary farmer to be a, and I quote, a 200 acre man, which to many of those starving was a vast farm. His government colleagues had already been heaping a disproportionate economic burden on the rural poor. Their indifference was seen in the budget of early 1925, when, amid a chronic fuel crisis, they taxed blankets. In this light, when the starving poor were pitched against the new state's reputation, the choice for common Noel was relatively simple. While the denial that the country was in crisis was simple for the politicians, it had serious ramifications. As the government oscillated between denial and acceptance, there was no coordinated and effective solutions offered and the crisis continued through the first half of 1925. Private relief funds struggled to raise the large amounts of money needed, especially when the government denied there was any problem at all. On June the 6th, 1925, the Irish Times reported destitution and sickness worse than it had been in the previous winter. The same day, the Anglo-Celt newspaper, reporting from the border counties, stated, Should the unseasonable weather continue, there is nothing for the country but a famine and it would be criminal to disguise the fact. However, in the doll, the government, while increasingly acknowledged there was a crisis, stated it was exaggerated. Ultimately, Ireland was saved from a full-blown famine in later 1925 and 1926, but not by government action. Instead, a greatly improved harvest in the autumn of 1925 saw the plight of those most at risk improve slightly. In the following years, it was not only politicians who were happy to see this dark chapter forgotten, though. A journalist with the Connacht Tribune in 1925 noted how the poor people conceal their poverty sometimes even from one another. They reveal a strange mixture of pride and fatalism. This pride may explain why victims of arguably one of the greatest crises since independence did not want this chapter of our history given any prominence. If you want to find the references and text of this podcast, check out the full article at my blog irishhistorypodcast.ie Until next time, Sloan.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.